Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, it's page 788 in the black Bibles around you. Uh, It's just three chapters, and so it's easy to skip over. There is no shame ever in going to your table of contents. It's there for a reason. Uh, But Zephaniah chapter 1. Again, page 788 in the Black Pew Bibles. I'll give you a moment to find it, and then we'll stand for the reading of God's Word in just a moment. Let's stand then together as God's Word is read. We'll look at just verses 1 through 6 this morning. Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter uh, next week and uh, be in about a six-week series in this a wonderful prophetic book. Hear God's word then as it's read to you this morning. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I can still picture the day uh, vividly. It was many, many, many years ago. Uh, I was in late middle school, and my brother was in early high school, and we were home alone while my parents uh, were out. Uh, They must have been at a restaurant or with friends or uh, some sort of event. You might know where this is heading. Tensions were high. I don't know why, but does there have to be a reason for a late middle schooler and an early high school brother? Uh, Tensions had been rising in this season in our life, and for some reason that day in particular, tensions were extremely high. And uh, of no fault of my own, uh, they really just ratcheted up. No button pushing on my middle school, you know, person at all. But my brother, all his fault, things started ratcheting up uh, to the point that we fought, like really fought, uh, to the point where blood was drawn. And it's amazing what happens when blood is drawn, you become unlikely allies. Uh, because we thought of our parents coming home very soon, and all of a sudden we were allies. We were on a team. We raided the makeup cabinet and tried to cover uh, the, the wound, as it were, on, on my brother's face. I know that doesn't seem to match up with what I said earlier, but don't worry about that. And we, we're on a team, and we're thinking, my parents are going to be home any minute. What do we do? The reality of coming judgment or coming consequences has an ability to change human behavior, does it not? We'll certainly talk on a deeper spiritual level, but even just on a human level, 
when authority is coming down, when consequences are coming, human behavior could be changed. And yet even on that level, it doesn't always change, does it? Sometimes consequences, hardship, the things that we face actually serve to harden what we were already doing. Sometimes the consequences are coming, but as human beings, we just say, nope, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, regardless of the consequences. What we're going to see in this text in Zephaniah, and really throughout the series, but you see it here, right in these first few verses, and it's really the the point of the message this morning, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. That's Zephaniah's message in verses 1 through 6. He wants them to know it is coming. Nothing will stop it. For them, Jerusalem is about to be destroyed within their lifetime. And the question for them is, how will you respond? This is coming. How will you respond? Will you buckle down and just keep doing what you were doing? Or will you be silent before the Lord? Humble, ready, saying, Lord, how do you want my life to look differently in light of this coming judgment? And that really becomes the question for you as well this morning. Uh, as we'll spend time nuancing this out over the next few weeks, they were facing a historical, uh, horrific, but temporary judgment on Jerusalem. We stand now waiting for judgment day one day, uh, which will make what happened to Jerusalem look like almost nothing uh, compared to when Christ comes with sword in his hand. So how will you respond to this reality that judgment is coming? Will you be silent before your holy God? ready to repent, seek him, and find life, even in the midst of troubled times. As I said, that's the point of the message. Judgment is coming. And so we'll look at three responses that I think Zephaniah wants us to have. And I think we'll see these play out throughout the rest of the book as well. Uh, But let me just give those to you. If you're following along in your outline, uh, those three responses are are these. Number one, in light of this judgment that's coming, number one, uh, be silent be silent. Number two, forsake all idols. Forsake all idols. And number three, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Let's turn now to the text itself. Uh, verse one, let me read it again, and, it, and then we're going to set the context. Who, who is Zephaniah? What is this book? When was he writing? Uh, it, those first words are the prophetic formula, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. If you look up any prophetic book, that's typically how they start. The word of the Lord came to this prophet, Zephaniah, and he gives his genealogy, son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Uh, There's a lot going on there, a lot of uh, good names uh, for maybe the babies coming in our church. And you wonder, who is this Zephaniah? Um, in some ways, the genealogy is a bit puzzling. As you look elsewhere in Scripture, uh, Scripture is pretty silent on who this Zephaniah was, um, and there's good debates as to his exact genealogy here. But the sort of driving thing here is that he is prophesying in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. And we come to, uh, throughout the series, I would love to give just these sort of tips. How do you read these prophetic books? Because uh, if, if you've ever been going through your reading plan and, and you hit Isaiah or, or one of these prophetic books, uh, it's good to have a few things to note. How do I approach this genre of scripture? And we're going to do the first tip right now. Tip number one is to know your timeline. 
uh, to know your timeline. And we're going to just briefly talk about the timeline because it very much affects the message of what's happening here. We've seen uh, in December that series, and uh, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, we'll just jump in right when David becomes king of Israel. Um, there was Saul. He was uh, a, a bad king, as it were, ultimately disobeyed the Lord. You have David, certainly not a perfect king, a king who still had to write Psalm 51 and confess his sin before the Lord, uh, but a king who was said to be uh, a man after God's own heart. The books of First and Second Samuel speak especially of uh, the ministry and the reign of King David. Again, not a perfect king, but certainly the best king in many ways that Israel uh, has had to offer in its history in the Old Testament. Uh, but you have David, and then his son Solomon takes uh, the throne. Uh, the kingdom expands. Uh, it seems like it's just going to grow and grow. And yet by 930 BC, you have a division in the kingdom of Israel. You have Israel, uh, as it's come to be called, in the northern kingdom. And then you have the kingdom of Judah in the south. And that's where Jerusalem sits and the temple. So you have these two kingdoms, two kings. So that if you read, you know, especially the, the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, your head probably spins thinking, okay, bad king in the north and there's a good king in the south. Okay, now there's a bad king in the south. And it, it, you need a timeline to help you. Uh, work through this, but uh, you have this back and forth of these different kings after this division, uh, all the way until something big happens. In 722 BC, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel is taken into exile. The power of the day at that time is Assyria, and in 722 BC, Assyria sweeps through Israel, taking its leaders, taking especially the wealthy, leaving the poorest in the land, and they're taken into exile. And 2 Kings 17 speaks of this exile. And 2 Kings 17.7 tells us why. Here, just the, the brutal nature of this, this reason. And this occurred, this exile, because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. And, and so... The scripture is clear. It's not just recording history. It's telling us why these things are happening. Theologically, why? The people sinned. They served other gods. They didn't serve the mighty God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so the northern kingdom was taken into exile. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom is still there. And you might wonder how they responded. You would think that they would look at the northern kingdom and say, Whoa, I have eyes wide open. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm not going to have idols in my house. I'm not going to serve Baal. We'll talk about him later. But if you know Israel's history, that wasn't the case for everyone. They were certainly always faithful Israel, serving the Lord. Uh, but you have these prophets warning the southern kingdom. You have Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah and Zephaniah, uh, our prophet here. And 2 Kings 17, 13 through 14 says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who had not believed in the Lord their God. And this is sort of where we pick up. This is where Zephaniah is prophesying. He is looking at the southern kingdom saying, you've seen what's happened to the northern kingdom. You have not repented. And in fact, Judah, now 
we're no longer, if, if you read, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah, especially Jeremiah, there's, there was this brief period where it was, hey, if you repent, perhaps you won't suffer the same fate as the northern kingdom. We're past that now in the timeline. Now the timeline is Babylon is coming. And we know from hindsight in 586 BC, Babylon, the power of the time, would sweep through and take Judah into exile. And so Zephaniah writes right on the cusp of Babylon's coming and says, judgment is coming. How will you respond, people of God? It's interesting that he says he writes in the time of Josiah. Josiah, as, as far as it goes, was a good king. Uh, Josiah in 2 Kings 22 through 25, he, he finds the book of the law, the, uh, uh, the Pentateuch and the law especially, and he reads it and he weeps and says, we are not following the Lord. We're not keeping his covenant. And he reads it in front of all the people of, of the land. And, and the people, at least verbally, say, we'll repent. We'll follow this law. And there's this revival that breaks out, as it were. We're not sure if Zephaniah was writing before those reforms, during those reforms, after. But it seems clear that even during the reforms, a very public revival, there, there is always this remnant, as we'll see, of Baal, of idols, of turning against the Lord. And that's exactly what Zephaniah is speaking to. So look at his words. Uh, We have, starting in verse 2 and really through the end of this chapter, some have called this one of the more brutal passages in the Old Testament, highlighting God's wrath and judgment. So hear this. I mean, just hear the language of verses 2 and 3. God says this to, to the people of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything, From the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. It's brutal, is it not? Imagine being the people of God. Perhaps some revival is even happening. You've seen what's happened to Israel. And this is the word that you're getting from your prophet. He just starts out, I will utterly sweep away everything. This is sort of universal language meant to open their eyes. And it's interesting, you see echoes of the Genesis account, right? The birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, mankind themselves, who was told to be fruitful and multiply. Now it's all sort of being reversed, so that the beasts are being swept away, the birds of the air swept away, mankind swept away. And then it very much echoes the language of Genesis 6, 5 through 7. Right before the flood comes upon the earth, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, so that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created over the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, I will sweep them away. So what does Zephaniah, through the work of the Spirit, want the people to see? He wants them to see that they are on the brink of something as earth-shattering as the flood was, physically for all the earth, now earth-shattering right in their midst. And the city of David in the southern kingdom of Judah, this judgment that is coming. And again, he he is speaking to Judah. Look at verse 4. He starts with this universal language. But he shows that he's talking at least first about what's going to happen to Judah, although it has implications for the judgment to come. But verse 4, he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and all the inhabitants of 
Jerusalem. And, and you're thinking, if, if, if put yourself back in their shoes. What is God saying to the people? What does he want them to do in response to this? At this stage, it's not that if they repent, this judgment won't come upon Judah. It's coming. So what does he want them to do? Let's borrow from next week's text. Look at verse 7. After this whole section, he says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And that's our first point, to be silent before the Lord. Like my brother and I were wide-eyed, ready to make amends, ready to figure out anything except to face the wrath, as it were, of my parents. But it, it, that's not what he's talking about. Deeper than that, far more than cosmetic covering or fear in, fear-induced behavioral management so that we don't get the consequences, to be silent before the Lord, ready to receive what he has to say. Right? What's one of the key ways you know if someone is sincere when you go to them seeking an apology? You know, you go to your, your friend and, and you say, hey, I, I need to speak this to you. I have this against you. Is it that they, jump, that they interrupt you and say, no, 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 but I, I've been so busy. No, 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 let me explain. I, I've just been really tired. No, it's that they're silent. Their shoulders slump. They're ready to hear from you. And they're ready to repent if it's, if it's sin that they've committed. People of God, the Lord has preserved these words of Zephaniah, not just for the people then, so many hundreds and thousands of years ago, but so that you would be wide-eyed and silent before the Lord your God. He is holy. He is mighty. When he utters judgments like this, he is just in doing so. Those of us who belong to Jesus Christ are not terrified. We know that we are covered by the blood of Christ, and yet we too are called to be wide-eyed, silent, open. Lord, shape me as you will. Drive out from me, far from me, anything that is not pleasing to you. Be silent before the Lord. Number two, forsake all idols. Forsake all idols. Look at verse four, the, the second half. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. He's dealing with the idolatry that persists in the land despite the reforms, despite what's happening uh, and, and if you go in the Old Testament, you see throughout Israel's history, uh, there's high points and low points in terms of the, the life of God's people as a whole, but almost throughout, there's, there's always these little indicators, even just these one lines of saying, and yet they kept their high places where they worshipped other gods, or oh, oh, and yet they kept these physical idols and their gods that they would serve. And this is really part of what led to, or hugely uh, uh, significant for the exile that happened to the northern kingdom, what's about to happen to Judah, that idolatry was a problem for Israel from the very beginning, from Egypt onward, and it continues to this day. And so you could see then, and if you would hear then these words, he, he starts with the most obvious form of idolatry, and then he works towards sort of a maybe a more nuanced or easier to hide form of idolatry. 
Uh, so would you hear this? He, in summary fashion, he would say, forsake all false gods. Forsake all false gods. That's verse 4 when he mentions the name of Baal. Uh, Baal was a particular false god of the time, a, a fertility god. Uh, it was seen that if you would worship Baal, your, your harvest would be plentiful. Uh, your, um, uh, the women of the land would be fruitful in terms of their womb. Uh, if you would but bow down to, sacrifice to, uh, worship Baal, this false god. And Baal continued to be a bane in the sight of Israel all the way through this period. And he's saying, forsake all false gods. You, many of you today would have said, who's Baal? At the time, everyone would have known who Baal was. And now this supposedly powerful god most people would scratch their heads and say, who is that? And yet people were serving. They were putting their trust in. They were saying, if I serve this Baal, I will have life. But instead, they were only receiving death. And instead, they were only receiving judgment from God. Next, he says, forsake all nature worship. He says, those who bow down on their roofs to the hosts of the heavens. So perhaps some in Israel, and often they would do all of these, but let's just say, okay, I'm not going to worship Baal. I'm not going to follow these false gods, but man, look at the stars. Look at creation. I'm going to bow down to it. I'm going to find hope in it. There's, there's power there. And he's saying, forsake all nature worship. You're, you're worshiping the creation, but you should be worshiping the creator. And next, to use a fancy term, because I couldn't find a better term, I'll just explain it. Forsake all syncretism. That's kind of a fun one. Syncretism. Look at verse uh, 5. Those who bow down and swear by the Lord. That sounds good. They're bowing down to the Lord, swearing by the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. That word, you probably have a footnote. It, it, it could be a particular false god, Molech. Uh, it could also, it's very similar to a Hebrew word for king. It could be that they're bowing down to their king. Either way, the idea is, oh, no, 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 I serve the Lord. I serve Yahweh. And just in case, I also serve this false god or this king or this other power. And that's what we call syncretism. Uh, this idea of, uh, yeah, I could serve the Lord, but I, I, I'm also just going to bring in these other things, these other voices, these other gods sort of to cover my bases. And he's saying, forsake all syncretism. It, it doesn't work. <laughs> the Lord plus anything equals nothing, as it were. And so, friend, if you've come today and you are seeking some other god, or we would say with a lowercase g, or some other deity or power or higher power or source that you can tap into, then in love, I need to tell you that at, at the very best, you are serving nothing. At the very best, you are serving something that 200 years from now, people will scratch their heads and say, what is that? I've never even heard of that. At the very best, you're serving nothing. At the worst, you are serving darkness and death. In other words, at best, you are serving a false god in a way that is useless. It, it won't do anything good for you except waste your time 
And at worst, you are serving a false god in a way that isn't just useless, but it's deadly. It's deadly. God made us to worship. We will worship. If we don't worship him, we'll worship something. We'll trust something. We'll inquire after something or someone. We can't help it. But if you are serving something that is lifeless, Scripture says that you will become like it. Because we're not only built for worship, but we become like what we worship. So if you are worshiping false gods, if you are worshiping these other things, even if you say, no, I trust the Lord, I just, I just also want to believe in these things, then you will become like them. You will become lifeless, full of death, and full of darkness. And if this sounds harsh to you, let me appeal to you. If you had a friend... Imagine you had a friend and, and she was struggling with cancer and uh, she was taking medication and you investigated and, and realized that the, medi- the medication she was taking wasn't medication, it was toxic, it was poison, it was destroying her. In love, you would probably just not say anything to her, right? No, in love, you would confront her and, and say, friend, it, this is killing you. If you continue to take this, you will die. And you would point her to true medicine, true relief. Something that would give her life. And that's all I want to do for you, friend, this morning. In love, I want to say that if you're following anything but the one true and living God, that you are following death and darkness, and it will destroy you. It will destroy your life now. Uh, But one day in the judgment to come, it will bring about eternal damnation for you. But praise be to God, we have Jesus Christ who came, who was the true image of God. Not like false idols, but when you see Jesus, you see the one true and living God. And he came and he lived and he died. And he died even for those of us, all of us who were idolaters, all of us who served other gods, other powers, other supposed deities. Uh, he even died for us and for you if your faith is in him. So that on the cross he bore the judgment that would have fallen upon us justly. It fell upon him. Scripture describes what he experienced as the cup of God's wrath, which was ready to be poured out. The people here would taste it in a very small way in history, uh, but this cup of wrath was poured out upon Jesus Christ for all those who have faith in him. And, 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 And we see that he drank it all the way down to the dregs. So that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are not terrified by passages like this. But if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, this passage is only terror for you. And so I pray that you would put your faith in this Jesus and forsake all idols. Lastly, number three, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. We see this in verse six. Those who have not turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. And I said that in one sense, he, he's moving from the most obvious, like Baal worship. That's obvious. A false god, there's an idol in your house. And he's moving more and more to something, a matter of the heart. To now, he says, judgment is coming because they have turned back from following the Lord. They do not seek the Lord. 
They do not inquire of him. And as one commentator says, in one sense, we actually have a, a sort of an encapsulated definition of idolatry. Is inquiring after something other than the Lord. Seeking after something other than the Lord. Following after something other than the Lord. Or indeed, in addition to the Lord. And so, Christian, I need to speak to you as well. To seek the Lord means that, Christian, you need to forsake all idols. In other words, this call to forsake our idols is sort of, uh, in a dramatic way, before we come uh, to believe in Christ, there's this dramatic sense in which we put away those things that we served before, those things we were enslaved to. But this call to forsake idols continues in the Christian life. 1 John 5, 21, he says, Dear children, be rid of your idols. He's speaking to the church. Certainly their, their power is done away with. We're not enslaved by them anymore. Uh, the guilt associated with serving these other things is gone. Jesus paid it all. But their presence is still something that we battle and we fight with until one day, as we'll look at tonight, in the new heavens and the new earth, even the presence of sin, the presence of idols will be done away with. Uh, Really, verse 4 becomes this gospel message, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. In the new heavens and the new earth, there won't even be a remnant of sin and idolatry. But Christian, who are you following? perhaps in addition to the Lord. Calvin says our hearts are like idle factories. Where do you inquire after? What makes for a good week or a bad week for you? Whom are you seeking? What are you seeking? Right, A, a, a child can say, I, I, I trust you, Dad. But if, if that dad is holding his arms at the playground structure... And the child, instead of jumping into his father's arms, sort of makes a makeshift rope with his uh, uh, jacket, and he's tumbling down, getting hurt along the way, and the father's waiting like this. Does he really trust his father? You could say, I trust you, Lord, but what is your life saying? I remember in early 2020, sort of, Remember that those like six days when the pandemic first started, when we actually all knew nothing? It was sort of beautiful in one sense. And, and I remember just, that, just the fear and the anxiety. And I remember praying at the end of that week, like, Hi, hi Lord. I've, I've kind of been living like I wasn't a Christian for about six days. Um, you know, here I am. And yet that's our tendency, right? As, as things come up or... We tend to look to these other things. What are you following? What are you seeking after? Who are you listening to in a way that they're elevating their voice even above the Lord your God? The antidote here is to forsake all idols and to positively here to seek the Lord, to follow Him, to seek Him, to inquire after Him. Not as a fail-safe or as I've exhausted my own finances, I've exhausted my own energy, I've exhausted my own thoughts, now I'll go to the Lord. But as a first place to seek Him with your whole heart. Remember Deuteronomy 6, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
In many ways, that is why God brought these six verses, this book of Zephaniah, to even to his faithful people who were about to experience horrific things historically. He was after their heart. People of God, this is coming. In the meantime, is your heart fully the Lord's? And certainly we'll look at that more in the weeks to come. And so we've seen then for, for, for the original readers immediately, and for us one day, judgment is coming. Therefore, be silent before the Lord. Therefore, forsake all idols. Therefore, seek the Lord with your whole heart. And so as we continue in worship and as we come to the Lord's Supper, perhaps the question, having such a passage that so masterfully shows us the holiness of God, how do we come into his presence now? His awesome presence, his holy presence. If the Lord asked you right now, what right do you have to be where I dwell? Well, we're about to sing what I think is a beautiful answer, um, summarizing from Scripture. Before the throne of God above, before the throne, the King, the Holy One, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Even being reminded of his sheer holiness and, and our sheer lack of it. If we were asked, what right do you have to be in God's presence? We would point to Jesus. Who whose blood pleads for us and who as high priest now pleads for us and says, no, they have a place here at the table. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, that it's like a sharp two-edged sword that cuts right through bone and marrow, it cuts straight to our hearts. And so I pray, Lord, if, uh, if you desire uh, any of our hearts to be cut this morning, uh, that by your word you would also patch up those wounds. Uh, that you would give us a sweet a salve of healing through your word. Uh, that we, we would be people whose hearts are wholly yours. Uh, be with us now as we continue in worship, as we prepare for the table. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.